You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number eight. Today we're talking to Lonnie Jarrett about using words and discussion as treatment tools. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fee Gitchum. Today we're talking to Lonnie Jarrett. Hi Lonnie. Hello. We're going to talk about talking, using words and discussion as treatment tools. Lonnie Jarrett is a Chinese medicine practitioner, teacher and author. He's written a few books, Nourishing Destiny and The Clinical Practice of Chinese Medicine. You can find his books at www.spiritpathpress.com. He also has a website with a community forum, articles and audios at www.nourishingdestiny.com. You'll also find his teaching schedule at www.chinesemedicine.courses. You can email him, Lonnie Jarrett at nourishingdestiny.com. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. So today we're talking about using words and discussion as treatment tools, and we decided to invite one of our favorite Chinese medicine practitioners onto the show, Lonnie Jarrett, to find out a little bit more about what you think on this topic. Um, Lonnie, what are your thoughts on using words and discussion as treatment tools? Like, how does this feature in your clinic? Sure. Well, I think, you know, first it starts, you know, we have to acknowledge that both, you know, our speech and our behavior are the outermost manifestations. They're action, speech and behavior are action, and action is the outermost manifestation that reflects every, all internal processes. Speech and behavior reflect the integrity of the inner self, the degree of integrity of the inner self. And we know, you know, from the point of view of diagnosis that really nobody can hide anything. Mm. That, that all of who a person is, is being expressed in everything they are and in every part of the self in every moment. So it's being expressed in their pulse, in their tongue, in their aura, in, in their eye in their movements, in the movements of their eye, in the tone of their voice, in their speech, in their posture, and in their actions. So, speech is really reflective of the deep inner process, and it's always reflecting the actual degree of integrity of the individual. And I would say it's the integrity of the practitioner that really serves as the foundation for efficacy in the medicine and all knowledge and all technique really serve that. So the goal is for us as practitioners to cultivate to a degree that we have an uncommon integrity, an integrity that is inspiring to people even before we speak. And, you know, if we look at the beginning of Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu says, well, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. And he's pointing to a limitation of language to convey the absolute. 
and you know absolute reality and I think while on the one hand we can acknowledge that's true that words ultimately fail to fully capture the depth of what we can awaken to as human beings I think on the other hand it's a very good quality to strive to be able to speak with nuance I really do believe that an individual only truly understands something to the degree they can articulate it with language. And speech has an inner and outer dimension to it. So the outer dimension of speech is just the content. So, you know, the content is the meaning conveyed. So you ask a patient, how is your relationship? And the patient says, fine. And you write down fine, but the patient might say fine, or fine, or fine. <laughs> they may say just that one word in a way that conveys defensiveness, aggressiveness, joy, sadness, grief, anger, neediness, worry, longing, um, and any of the emotions, and, and, you know, and different sources of motivation. Uh, and an individual word or speech in general is always conveying the motivation that it's coming from. And that we can look in a very broad sense and say that there are two types of motivation. There's wholesome motivation and unwholesome motivation. Unwholesome motivation is the cause of separation itself. And separation in terms of Chinese medicine is what causes illness. And speech can also the wholesome speech, wholesome speech catalyzes the emergence of a greater integrity. So from my point of view, um, you know, I'm always listening. If we look at the Chinese character to listen, it's in the name of Small Intestine 19, Ting Gong, Listening Palace. And the character is comprised of the ear of the disciple listening to the words of the sage so that the heart is rectified. And the character for rectification, the right hand of that character, means that a person can travel through the world and be scrutinized from every direction, and no deviation can be found in their heart. So the character for listen has implicit within it the notion that speech can rectify the heart. So we have this reciprocal relation between speaking and listening, the practitioner is listening through their own cultivation. They're, they're listening to the deepest voice within them. There's a voice inside all of us that always tells the truth. And from the position of being able to, to the degree that I can hear that voice within myself clearly, I'll be able to hear it within my patient. So the patient's words have content, but there's an inner meaning to the words and an inner motivation, and I'm always listening for where is, the pre where is the patient coming from? What are they really saying? Is there integrity to their message, or is there constant irony and contradiction within what they're talking about? So when I'm listening, I'm listening to the metaphors they use. I'm listening for the archetypes in their speech. When I'm listening to a person speak, Arising in my own awareness are I Ching hexagrams, the names of all the acupuncture points, the names of all the herb formulas. And um, 
these arise as the person is speaking and you know are all part of a like a pointillist painting the person is speaking and an image is becoming increasingly more clear and then I'm speaking to that always trying to mer- catalyze the emergence of a of a greater wholeness and I use language in a way to help people reframe how they're thinking about things people the most one of the most the, the most significant internal cause of illness other than just um, you know genetics other than genetic predispositions but the greatest single internal cause of illness that a person can actually change is how they think about things and it's just simply true that most people draw a conclusion unconsciously when they're prior to the onset of language you know six months old eight months old a year old two years old three years old and then as language sets in they just continually reinforce this unconscious conclusion throughout their entire lives the conclusion might be conscious but it has significant unconscious dimensions to it. And a person can go through their whole life having the way they look at life and the way they respond to life completely conditioned by the conclusion that they drew when they were a young child before the mind had really developed. The, the mind develops congruent with the emergence of language. When we think we think in a language and we store information in a language, in our native language to ourselves. And so I listen for how people speak and I'll, I'll give you an example. I, just recently I had a, a patient about three weeks ago who I'd seen for a couple months and she really felt she wasn't improving and she came in emphatically telling me how important it was that I understood how apathetic she was about life. So there's complete irony in that. On the one hand, she's her experience, and what she wants to communicate to me is how little she cares about her relationship, how little she cares about work, how little she cares about anything. But she's being completely and She's really about enthusiastic it. about her lack of enthusiasm. Right. It meant so much to her that I got just how little she cares. <laughs> and, I, and I just pointed out to her and I said, well, look, the amount of time and money you're spending here, the fact that you walk up the stairs to my office and you're sitting here now making sure that I get how little you care and the part of you that's doing that cares very much. And there was a complete shift in the room, a shift in the expression on her face, a complete like went off in her head and I assigned to her between now and the next treatment when I see you next week I just want you to pay and continually bring into your awareness how often you experience caring and how often you deny it and she came in the next week and said everything changed her symptoms were all subsiding two or three of them were completely gone she was happy she liked to work she she was really deep, more deeply committed in a relationship and just felt everything had turned 180 degrees. So reframing things for people is one of the most significant things we can do. Very often, all we have to do is get somebody to shift and look at something 
one degree different. They just have to shift their perspective one degree to be able to see things completely new and to be let out from under this sort of um, spell that they've been entranced in, locked into this thought, feeling, emotion, and sensation, this conglomeration, this miasm of thought, feeling, emotion, and sensation that they've been inflating with intention their whole life and making it real. And by reframing, using language to reframe, we just take a pin and we just pop that bubble and everything can change. I totally, totally agree. You're speaking my language. It's so satisfying just to listen to you describing it all. We um we was we were talking about this a little on uh, the first episode where um we were talking about the importance of having a clean agenda. So as a practitioner, that allows you to be able to see what's going on in the patient without you being clouded by your own judgments and and preconceptions. So that you have then the ability to respond to that patient in a way that's useful for them rather than you know, putting your own colouring on what's happening for them, that you can see you can see them and you can see what's happening rather than okay. rather yeah. than um, you know, giving them having a discussion with them that might not be useful. Right. So we definitely don't want discussions that aren't useful. But I would reframe so I would reframe what you said. So it, it's just interesting to consider. So the point of spiritual cultivation and the point of practice and the point of self-development is one of the main points is to just become increasingly more objective. And increasingly more objective means objective toward our own selves. We're, we're not going to be more really more objective in life than we are toward our own selves in terms of knowing who we are, why we're here how to live in relationship to that. And we try to make the self, we try to make the self an object in awareness and what we can see we can respond to and we can operate on and we can change. But no matter how objective a person gets, we're always going to be looking through a lens. We're never going to see the eyes we're looking through. We're never going to see the screen we're looking through. And this in part, the screen we're looking through is very much defined by our values. And while we may be, to the degree a person's awake, they're conscious of their values, but no matter how conscious we are of our values, we're never going to be completely objective about them. Everybody has an ego. Everybody has an unconscious, has unconscious motivations. Everybody has shadow. And while I think we can um, get to know ego and shadow very, very well, to increase our, our chances of operating free thought from a pure motivation, I don't think we can ever take for granted we are that we're doing that. So, so whether we're so, and so I'm not entirely sure in quotes about not judging a patient. Because we're always doing that. We're always looking at all phenomena through values. If you're, if you're looking through the lens of the five elements, of the eight principles, of the Shanghan Lung, those are all overlapping, related, but quite different value systems, quite different perspectives. 
and um, you know the, the the value, for instance, the value of not judging is a pluralistic postmodern value, which itself is based on the judgment that one shouldn't judge. That's true. Which is all, which which is already a value. And I would say that there's a hierarchy of values, and as practitioners, it's really up to us to really cultivate and give our lives to cultivational practice, to, to meditate every day, to have practices like Qigong or Tai Chi, martial arts, yoga, and not just as a hobby and, you know, not just to entertain ourselves and to feel good or to look good in spandex, but really <laughs> cultivate in a spiritual way. So we, we actually have developed compassion and we develop humility. Mm-hmm. Um, but compassion and humility are not inconsistent with holding out for our highest values. So I would just say that very often when people are reticent to judge others, the shadow side of that is a failure to judge all the different parts of their own self rather than to really identify the highest parts, strive toward the highest parts, and not express through words or behavior the lower parts of this of which we all have. I think it's such an interesting rabbit hole, you know, in that way when I discuss with patients about how their words they're using can cultivate a particular state in their body. Um, I, you know, I always say the, the body loves honesty and it knows the truth. And so when there is some kind of dishonesty or, um, false use of words in their inner dialogue, that's what really is expressing through the body until they can adjust their language and then they get that kind of realizational shift uh, like your patient as you described. And I think that, you know, as practitioners, our our cultivation is really in um, cultivating and paying attention to how we reframe, as you say, how how much skill we have with our own inner dialogue and perceiving ourselves and being open to seeing everything that we're showing ourselves, uh, that that skill is what we then share with the patient. Yeah, language. Look, so Mao Tzu says that language can't convey the ultimate reality, and we, we can understand that and we can experience that. So that's in the picture, but what's also in the picture is from another perspective, language is perhaps the most highly evolved capacity the universe has manifested to date. It's When you are talking and I'm talking, when we're speaking to each other, from the perspective of consciousness, the same thing is speaking that's listening. Yes. And, and when we can really acknowledge that, that there is only one, there's only one practitioner, there's only one patient, there's only one parent, there's only one child, there's just one from this perspective of non-duality, then we see that it took, as far as modern physics tells us, 15 billion years for a form of matter to emerge that could know itself and begin to articulate its experience of existing. And even... 15 billion years for something 
to be able to contemplate nothing and then begin to talk about it. And that's really quite a remarkable thing. So, so to me, um, consciousness is the only true medicine. It's the only authentic medicine. Everything serves consciousness. And language is one of the highest capacities that consciousness has manifested to date. Mm. So when you're in a clinical situation, is it an, like an intuitive process for you in terms of what words you speak in that therapeutic context? Um, I mean, because for me, it's almost like the, the pressure that's caused in the patient's body by their inner dialogue having like false descriptions within it that pressure almost pressures my body for me to speak what's relevant. And, and it's as if I get just to observe it all happening. Well, I mean, I don't rehearse everything. Things are spontaneous, just like this talk. I mean, I completely forgot we were doing it, so I looked at the four questions three minutes before we <laughs> went on. And it's the same thing. You walk in clinic, and there are, different, there are just multiple perspectives we're capable of holding. So... Mm, I wouldn't, one way to look at things is the body is causal and the body affects consciousness. That's one perspective. Another perspective is that consciousness is the foundation of the universe and that consciousness is primary and all emergence reflects consciousness at different stages of its own evolution. And both of those are causal perspectives. And then from the perspective of the East, one, the, the real main principle of East Asian inquiry is called dependent origination. And from that perspective, we just look at everything that exists in the moment. So we're not looking at cause and effect. We're just looking at every sign in the body and every sign in behavior and every sign in language as a simultaneous emergence. And when we treat, we're shifting all of that simultaneously. But my, my, so all those perspectives I can hold, and the one I'm a little more partial to is that I tend to see consciousness as primary and the body as a manifestation of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Although all three perspectives are always in the picture. This is nice just to contemplate. We're, we're just sitting here with smiles on our faces going, yeah, we're nodding. <laughs> the, the pregnant pause that is really natural in this type of exchange, um, you know, we'll, we'll, yeah. just, we'll just edit it for the audio, but it's, well, you know, it's good to experience this. Well, just to point out that, I mean, this is a perfect time to point out because when you say that, it brings up that a, a couple of things. One, so in the treatment room where there's that pregnant pause, the practitioner really has to know when to really let it sit and not fill that void. Mm, uh, I, I totally agree. I think that's so important and it's something I've seen for myself over the years is that sometimes it's better if I actually just don't say anything and I just hold, you know, just hold the space and allow the patient to you know, process things or to, you know, sometimes that's when you'll get further information and it, you know, it invites them to, um, to go further inward. It's also a perfect time to leave the space and then at the right moment say, okay, um, please get on the table. Mm. 
Because an, a principle is you don't want to over talk when, when, when you've made a point and the person, everything shifted in the room and the patient has really gotten the message. Anything you say after that is going to run the risk of just diluting the message that was already delivered. Sure. Especially if it brings up their uncomfortable feelings. Right. Well, those uncomfortable feelings, you know, there's no evolution without resistance and friction. Mm. Evolution tends to take place in the presence of stress, not when a person is really comfortable. I think, I think the distinction, I think it's an important distinction to make where, you know, the idea of having, um, I think it's a very Taoist approach that sometimes by, by doing nothing, you're doing the most important thing. And I think it's a tricky thing to learn for, um, some of the students and new graduates who might be listening is that there is definitely a, um, an idea that's taught at school, you know, you've got to come up with a acupuncture treatment protocol, you've got to come up with a herbal medicine plan, you've got to come up with a nutrition plan, um, and that sometimes what a patient actually needs is a heart-to-heart conversation or someone who can help to guide them through their, you know, their worries or whatever is, is going on in their life where they're not seeing something that would be useful for their healing. And I um, I wonder if you can just speak a little bit about how that process developed for you and how you went from being a new practitioner and at what stage did you realize that, you know, that the words and, and the interactions you're having with your patients were just as important to pay attention to? Well, I think it was always my assumption. I mean, I started thinking about Chinese medicine when I was in high school in 1975. I discussed it in my college entrance essay. And I went all through college in neurobiology and psychology and, you know, kept studying. And I had a professor in college who was actually an acupuncturist. I, I was, I started martial arts seriously when I was 18. And did that, you know, I have a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. I did that for 27 years. Now I just teach my son. I don't really practice anymore, but, you know, I practice thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of meditation and um, tens of thousands of hours of martial arts. And I still do Qigong every day for um, at least 20 minutes. And so there's a, a constant... Um, you know, I've been cultivating really, I'm, I'm the 58 in a, in a month. And I think it's fair to say that I've been, uh, cultivating for 40 years every day, seriously. And words always meant a lot to me. Words were always important to me. And it was point, and in the school I went to, which was the school in the lineage of J.R. Worsley, um, the people who ran the school always emphasized the importance of language. And one of the principles in the school that really impressed me was the idea that the treatment should be done before you've put the needles in. 
and that the significant function of needles is to reinforce the movement of qi that has already been created through the therapeutic relationship. So, so when I was in school, I met Leon Hammer. And when I got out of school, it turned out he just was practicing an hour and a half for me. So I went and I followed him in the clinic a bit and, you know, apprenticed with him. And I ran all his workshops for 10 years. Now, Leon is the author of Dragon Rises, Red Bird Flies, as well as probably the most significant pulse book in the history of Chinese medicine. And um, he's, he's a 91 now. He's a psychiatrist. And last time we had lunch, he said, at 91 years old, he feels like he's finished half his life's work. Wow. And, you know, and so Leon was always very oriented toward the mind and I, I, and toward psychology, toward the mind and toward spirit, toward the heart. Um, I also was good fortune, had the good fortune of having, uh, Father Claude Lahr and Elizabeth Rochat as teachers early on, and I was very affected by Claude Lahr, who was at once a genius, but also very humble. And and he, he and Elizabeth were all about the language. Now, they were teaching classical Chinese and the meaning, but everything they were teaching, everything had to do with understanding language. It was the Chinese language and understanding the Chinese mind and the Chinese values. Mm-hmm. through the language. So that was always important to me. And when I got out and I started practicing clinically, this, that entire orientation was already my foundation. Yeah, I think it's really essential because in, in my experience, I quite often my patients will have some kind of catharsis or tears during the session. But I would say probably 70 to 80% of the time that comes from something I've said to reflect themselves back to them. Um, and the other part of the time it's from a, um, a needle, an acupuncture choice. And I don't mean because I hurt them. I mean because it's, it's a, supported that cathartic movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, when it's happening with the needles, usually then they are looking at you for the words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's all true. You know, it's all about human relationship. I think it's so important being able to develop, being able to develop rapport with your patients and and also, I think honoring the, you know, the series of events and the choices and all of the factors that go into a particular patient arriving to see you instead of another practitioner or they're coming to see you now instead of in a year's time or 12 months ago. Um, there's definitely a lot of unconscious choice that happens in that. And I think that, you know, we, we are chosen as practitioners for the particular, um, for the particular value that we can add for that patient at that point in their life and the way that we can interact with them and affect change in them. Um, I think that's a really 
that's also a really important thing for me to to remind myself. And sometimes I do say that to my patients. I'm like, well, you know what? You're here and you're seeing me. You're not seeing any of the other, you know, two or 300 acupuncturists who are in Melbourne. And so this is what you get when you come to see me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree that, that it's a sacred responsibility and I mean, every meeting with every human being is, I mean, mm. when we cultivate to a certain point, we realize that it's our obligation in every interaction with every human being to catalyze the emergence toward wholeness, to respond to even difficult, challenging and painful things in life in a way that moves things toward wholeness and makes things better. And I think that's just the fundamental commitment of any authentic healer. And so when, yes, when somebody comes into our practice, my assumption is that um, there are forces at work, that there's a soul level connection, that it's a sacred obligation. And I feel a responsibility, therefore, to cultivate every day, to go further every day, so that when my patient comes, if, if a patient steps one inch toward me, I'll step 15 feet toward them. And you take their hand and until they let go, you want to be able to take them all the way, whatever that means. So if a patient says they want more, if they're calling, either if they're saying it explicitly or their soul is calling for more depth in life, because everybody's soul is always calling for more depth, we need to cultivate so we can say, well, how much more depth would you like? Would you like access to infinite depth? And to be able to really back those words up so the patient has a felt sense of that depth. So it's our own orientation toward living a life of developing integrity. But before we even speak, it's going to create an alignment through resonance in the patient with their own life force. And the life force, as I understand it, we can call it eros, we can call it the evolutionary impulse, the creative impulse. The direction of the life force is, in the words of Plato, toward the true, the good, the beautiful. And when we're doing needles, when we're giving herbs, when we're interacting with a patient, the fundamental goal of medicine is to remove everything that is false, wrong, and untrue, and to empower the expression of everything that is true, every, all the upright energy, all the authentic energy. So we talk about Zen Chi and Zen Chi, the true Chi, the upright Chi. And the character for upright depicts heaven and earth and a line and a, between the two. And it means going all the way from one shore to the other without stopping part way. And it's our own intention to go all the way to the distant shore, to actually arrive there and put a stake in the ground and give ourselves to that, that is going to create the, the, even before we speak, create the orientation and the confidence in a person um, that they feel inspired and motivated toward a greater integrity within themselves. Yeah, because that part of their soul can recognize you as the boatman to the other shore. Exactly. Precisely. I feel often that there, you know, there's a lot that goes down just in already what's occurred before the patients made their first booking and they've selected a practitioner. My students that it all be 
begins when you get their, when you listen to their voicemail on the answering machine, when you listen to the message, that's, it's all, that's when it all begins. Yeah. I have found myself even saying to patients, you know, when they have experienced, you know, or they come in the next week and they say, what you said to me last week and, you know, it's really changed me or I had that catharsis and, and now I have adjusted my self somehow and things have improved, you know, that often I'll, I'll just smile and say, yes, well, that's what you came to me. You wanted me to say that to you. Yeah. Any other questions? There are a few more on the list. Yeah, we have lots. <laughs> <laughs> do you, uh, so in terms of Chinese medicine ideas, you, you've mentioned a lot. I recognize a lot of Taoist philosophy in the I Ching, uh, which I'm a big fan of as well. And definitely for me, various hexagrams will pop up during a consult while someone's talking. It's almost like my, you know, third eye functions is this reference screen to, um, perceive all the things they're showing me uh, within those languages that I know that may be useful for me to feed back to them. Um, but are there other influences and frameworks of understanding the mind or philosophy that you draw from as well outside of Chinese medicine? Yeah, yeah of course there is. Look, none of us, there, there's, there's probably no one in the world practicing Chinese medicine who's only influenced by Chinese medicine. I mean, even if you have a practitioner in China who's a scholar of classical Chinese and um, can read the ancient text and is practicing in a family lineage, if the guy has an iPhone or uh, a phone or is on the internet at all, then there's a whole world of ideas. And even if there's no explicit connection, consciousness is unbroken, and that person through the collective unconscious and through mimetic fields would still be influenced by um, the current condition of the world and in no way separate from it. So Chinese medicine migrated to the West 350 years, you know, it was 1650, 350, 360 years ago when um, the Jesuits brought it back. And Wilhelm Leibniz, who invented differential and integral calculus, um, and the first holographic theory. And binary math did it, studying the I Ching with Jesuit scholars. And Carl Jung, when he formulated his theory of the unconscious, felt he had no proof for it whatsoever. When he, and his theory of archetypes, he felt he had no proof until Richard Wilhelm showed him the I Ching. And Jung had a eureka moment and said, there's the proof I'm looking for. That's why he wrote the foreword to Wilhelm's version of the I Ching. And so, where, you know, we don't have the same geographic isolation that we had. We're living in one world, and over 350 years, Chinese medicine has become a world medicine. The, the foundational strength of the Chinese mind is synthesis. And it's capable of integrating anything in a wholesome way. And I think that's the essence I, uh, of shamanism as well. The what? The essence of shamanism. You know, um, this is something I, use, I study a lot as well. And one of the first definitions of shamanism for a healer uh, that I learned was, you know, that 
if you need to get over the wall, there is no one system for doing it. You just need to be available to receive the insight towards which, which system you're going to use in this particular circumstance. Sure. Well, well, shamanism is a very, very ancient expression. And if we look at ancient shamans, probably 98% of them were either phonies or regressed schizophrenics. And then the 1% or 2% who were authentic were actually probably the first people in history who were able to leap off that foundation and make it into transpersonal realms beyond ego, into um, into at least the psychic and, and certainly even the um, subtle realm. And so, um, yeah, so there's, like anything, there's a higher end and the lower shamanism. And, you know, the point I was making is that Chinese medicine over 350 years, it's become a world medicine now. So, you know, I, I grew up listening to Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and um, started studying Chinese medicine when I was 17 years old, started reading about it, but went through undergraduate school in psychology and biology and then went through graduate school in neuroscience and neurobiology and then went into Chinese medicine, five element acupuncture and then studied this very deep um, system from Dr. Shen through Leon. So I studied with Leon Hammer and learned his teacher, Dr. John Shen, his family lineage traditional pulse diagnosis, which has you know, 85 qualities now and 50 places to put your finger and eight different depths to the pulse. And so we're always learning. And, and you know, I've been reading Ken Wilber for 30 years. I'm very um, influenced by integral theory, Teilhard de Chardin, Sri Aurobindo, the, um, you know, the, um, People like William James and Al Aldous Huxley and Julian writings of Julius Huxley, Emerson, and um, the Transcendentalists, and I study world philosophy. So I've I've read you know all, all the philosophers, most of the philosophers, East and West, and studied all the great traditions in the world to more or less of a degree. And all of that is all of that is always coming in. If we look. Just in a black and white context, we could say Buddha, who is the icon of the Eastern Enlightenment, had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And if you compare Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree with Jesus wearing a crown of thorns and um, carrying the crucifix up, the, um, the cross up the hill, um, as the icon of the Western Enlightenment, he had somewhere to go and everything to do. And we're capable today of actually embracing the enlightenment of both of them. We can wake up to emptiness, the same emptiness the Buddha woke up to. We can wake up to emptiness as the ground of our own being, as the authentic depth of our own self that the soul emerges out of in incarnation. And we can also wake up to that, that passion that, you know, Jesus had, the mythical Jesus, I don't know what actually happened, but in terms of the myth, it's very, very, very powerful in terms of the, the motivation.
desperation, the passion that he had. So coming out of emptiness, there's an explosion. Emptiness is absolute, but the creative impulse is also absolute. And there's a back and front of each other. The empty, emptiness is empty, and the absolute is the explosion of luminosity out of emptiness. Luminosity is that yang was in the yin, that little spark of light we call the sun that rises out of the infinite ocean um, to illuminate all of creation. And both of these are absolute, and we are capable of um, awakening to, to emptiness as self, but also the explosion coming out of it as self, and to actually synthesize a, a third position that goes further than either one of them went on their own, and to carry that forward. And your patients get all of this when they come to see you, and they probably don't even know, you know, one percent of all of of all of your, you know, what you've been exposed to and your interests and all of the ideas and input that has gone. so yeah well people engage us at different levels you know so at any time in my practice I probably so if I'm seeing about 45 50 people a week there are probably 10 of those people engaging me at the level I'm capable of working at and another 15 or 20 engaging me somewhat and another 10 or 15 who just come in and they just want to talk about whatever movie they saw lie on the table and have me treat them. If that happens, do you try to shift the engagement? What? How do you respond to um, what level of engagement they are engaging well, my with? Is my assumption is that when they're ready, they'll let me know and that who I am is an invitation to engage at that depth. And I would only do something explicit if the person was speaking in a way that was very, very divisive or contradictory or ironic, and in a way that betrayed that they were taking actions that were completely antithetical to their stated motive for coming, and then I would have to call them on it. But as long as people are show up on time, their check clears and they're respectful, then I, I give people space. But there's always the invitation to go deeper. I like the idea that the you know the books that are in your waiting room are just as effective at demonstrating you know what is possible in a in a um, in a treatment with you. I think that's a really great idea. I'll I'll have to go down and have a look at what's on the shelf at the moment. I think. <laughs> yeah, I try to avoid anything new age. But I have a lot of philosophical texts and, of course, a fair amount of stuff I've written, but all kinds of stuff. I have Gallus journals and all kinds of stuff. And if somebody starts engaging, picks one up and starts asking me about it, then, then we can have a discussion. You know, that can be a leaping off point. So one of the other uh, things that we wanted to talk about today, Lonnie, was the um – there's a real, there seems to be a real duality within our profession and some people seem to be really quite focused on the idea of, you know, being professional and maintaining professional boundaries and what constitutes acceptable behaviour in terms of how we interact with our patients and even the types of conversations that we would have with them. But yet, you know, what we're talking about today is in some ways that, you know, the 
the opposite of that where you know we're talking about trying to cultivate and um and focus on developing that practitioner patient relationship how what are your thoughts on that well i think the people you're talking about are completely and utterly deluded so first of all i mean of course we should be professional so nobody's going to argue that we shouldn't be professional and of course we need to have professional boundaries and then the discussion becomes about what does professional mean and what are the appropriate professional boundaries. Now, in the United, in, in America, we have 50 states and every state has a different law regarding acupuncture and um, a different description of what the scope of practice is. So the good states have a very wide scope of practice. In Massachusetts, where I practice, I'm licensed, I mean, my scope of practice includes just about anything you could want to do. It includes curly and photography. And the all-important word is in there. The all-important word is lifestyle counseling. And once you have lifestyle counseling and scope of practice, anything is fair game. Then anything is fair game. The notion that you should leave spirituality or philosophy out of the treatment room is completely and utterly absurd because it can't be done. The, the idea that you should leave it out of the treatment room is a philosophical idea that you're bringing into the treatment room. So it doesn't even logically make any sense. It's a complete and utter fallacy. Wherever you go, there you are. The, the flip side of that argument is that sort of new agey person who looks at their treatment room as their altar and they're going to go to the door and leave all their stuff outside the treatment room and go <laughs> in and be a pure vessel of light. <laughs> it's so funny. You're going to bring into the treatment room, you're going to act in the treatment room the exact same way you were acting outside of the treatment room for all the same reasons. And the notion that you can just leave the fact that you're a complete and utter neurotic mess out there in the hall and then go in and start speaking Dallas philosophy to people is absurd. So, so the thing is, you know, wherever you go, there you are. We're always bringing who we actually are to the treatment. And, and all of the psychodynamics, so in terms of psychoanalysis, which was a very significant advancement in understanding of the human condition that Freud and Jung and, and um, Eric Neumann and all the different analysts and developmental psychologists, Piaget and Kohlberg and Levinger, all the work these people did the last 120 years represents a very significant advancement in our understanding of the human condition. And all of that is going on. And to pretend that it isn't, to pretend that transference isn't occurring and that projection isn't occurring and our patients don't have shadows and they don't have mixed motivations, to pretend that they don't have spirits and they don't have souls, to pretend that they're not fundamentally divided and all we're going in is treating a symptom is absolutely, completely and utterly delusional. Now the question is, are the schools preparing students to work at the level I'm pointing to in a way that when they get out, they're competent to do it? And the answer 
for the most part, is absolutely not. Mm. Mm. I would agree with that too. They're they're not doing that. And not only are they not doing that, most of the schools, at least the ones I'm aware of, aren't even giving a solid foundation in Chinese medicine. They're not Mm. teaching people the a basis in Chinese language. Not everyone's going to be able to read classical Chinese. But every practitioner, to, to really get a really embodied understanding of Chinese medicine, you have to have some reasonable facility with the quality of mind. And, and the quality of mind, nothing represents the quality of mind more than the language. So there needs to be a foundation in the language. There needs to be a strong foundation in pulse diagnosis. Because because it's too easy for us to project on our own patients. And it's too easy to, to derive all our meanings from words. And the pulse, by touching the pulse, taking pulse is is a cultivated form of listening. We're listening with the fingertips and from our fingers that life force is coming right through the pulse into our minds and into our hearts simultaneously. So there need so pulse diagnosis is a very profound form of cultivation mm. that really lies at the heart of the medicine. I really but agree with you there on the pulse. Yeah, and to the to without pulse it's nearly impossible to articulate a meaningful Chinese diagnosis. Mm. And the more nuanced the person's pulse diagnosis is, the more they're going to be able to articulate to themselves why they're doing what they're doing clinically. So I think that's very important. But to these very conservative people who talk about professional boundaries and just treating symptoms and just doing Chinese medicine, I don't think it holds any water. It's just a very conservative view of of people who haven't really... Obviously, to take that point of view, you have to declare that you're not practicing holistic medicine. But if you're going to call Chinese medicine holistic, then holistic means no part of the self left behind. And if I'm going to leave no part of the patient behind, then I have to have a living relationship with all the dimensions of myself, emptiness, my own shadow, I have to have aware of my conscience, my soul, spirit, and I have to have a mature relationship to these dimensions of myself, not just to the ego, not just to the content stored in the mind, not just to understand Chinese medicine as a knowledge base and a technical base, but to be able to bring, to reach the full humanity of my patient, I need to have relationship with, with the full humanity in my own self. And to think, to declare that we need to leave any part of that out of the treatment is to severely compromise the medicine. Mm. I, I fully agree. And I, I would add to that as well that the, um, part of knowing yourself as a practitioner that um you know having a daily practice whether it's a qigong practice or a yoga practice or even if it's you know going for a a 20 minute run that you've got something that you're doing each day that is 
a point of reflection and a point of reference for yourself. And so you've got these practices and you're like, oh, well, this was, you know, my my Qigong practice this morning was a bit off. And so you're using that as a tool to be able to observe how you are on that day and that can make you more aware of, you know, you might need to make some adjustments or, you know, just to keep that in mind when you're in the treatment room that you're, you know, you're different from day to day and some days you're more different than others or if you're more affected on certain days. I think that's important to um, one of the important aspects of having a, um, a regular reflective or cultivated practice. Sure, I, I agree. And I would add to that that starting out each day by returning, by giving yourself to emptiness, by going to zero, creates um, a clarity and a luminosity within and create and allows for a reference point against which all incoming information can be judged. So to the degree that I know emptiness as self and to the degree that I know that fire rising out of it as self, all diagnostic information is relative to those two absolutes. And so starting out each morning with a cultivational practice sets the foundation for an entire day. Mm. I find also that um, you were discussing in the beginning, you know, the, the practitioner is cultivating their integrity to serve as a, a almost like a guidance for the patient who also is seeking to cultivate their own, even if they come in stating it differently. Um, and that sometimes there is, before you've even spoken, just for that person to come into your energy field, starts to entrain their chi, it starts to shift them, uh, things start to occur. Some people already feel types of catharsis before you've even said uh, whatever are the golden words that you may be able to say to them. Um, so I find also there's a lot of responsibility in sensing that and feeling that so that when we do start to speak uh, therapeutically that we're really supporting what's already occurring energetically or what's already been exposed energetically, that we're kind of um, fine-tuning it with our words. Yeah, that's the whole thing. You got it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I always use the example of, you know, the, the middle-aged man who comes and he's like, yeah, I've got a sore neck, that's why I'm here. But really he's coming for, you know, his anxiety and he kind of feels like he's in a bit of a midlife crisis and not really sure where he's headed and what does it all mean and I don't feel quite right in myself. And yet he's presented with a sore neck. And it's like, okay, well, I'm treating, I'm here and I'm helping you with your neck, but there's this underlying agenda that sort of brings people in. Mm. And, um, and I think that this, you know, this type of discussion is really, um, you know, that that's the kind of stuff we're talking about too. Mm. That's when I would probably say, so tell me, what's a pain in the neck? Yeah. Who is a pain in the neck? <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, you know, what you're pointing, what you said at one point was even if they don't say so explicitly. And then what you're really highlighting there is the, is the issue of being able to hear what they're calling for beyond their, that we need to be trained to be able to listen to them 
in a way that they're not even listening to themselves. And then mm-hmm. by bringing, um, by bringing their deeper voice that's calling into their own awareness, making the implicit explicit to them, they can start developing in that and, and gain awareness of that. Yeah, it's so beautiful. You just reminded me of uh, the situation that I've had many times and that is someone is crying and they're kind of a little embarrassed that their catharsis is occurring or they feel like they want to hide it or downplay it. Um, and I'm just sitting there and, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm crying, you know. It's, and I'll just say, well, your your heart has been seen and heard now by both of us and that's what it needs from you. Right. And it's also important for to understand that people have far more awareness of why they're doing what they're doing, what their motivation is, and what's going on than they let us know, than they'll admit to, mm. but far more awareness than they even admit to themselves. Often when a patient is speaking, if they say something that's really ironic and shows a lot of ambivalence and and division, when they look at me for a response, very often I'll just say, well, how does what you just said sound to you? And very often the person can say, it's totally crazy, I said this, but I also said that, and they totally contradict each other. And when they can do that, the prognosis is very good, because you say, yeah, there is a division right there, let's look into that. But if a person just says, I have absolutely no idea, what do you mean? then you can see the force of denial and the force of resistance. And we're always working with the force of resistance. In terms of Chinese medicine, the force of resistance is um, everything physiologically embodied that's obfuscating the life force. And in Chinese medicine, we call this cold, wind, heat, fire, dampness, and dryness. Right? These are pathogens. Pathogens really from a deeper point of view, are just physiological embodiments of ignorance that are that are suppressing awareness. Ignorance suppresses awareness. Mm. So what do you do if you have a patient who really rejects a lot of your words where you're, you know you're reflecting something and they just really reject every opportunity to see things? No, I mean... If a person clearly, either explicitly or implicitly lets me know they're not interested, I just, you know, I just back off. As I said, if they step an inch, I'll go 10,000 miles with them. But the second they let go of my hand, they're free and I'm free. Yeah, and then you can just give them some acupuncture for their sore back. And, you know, they, they, there's, there's value in that. Come back to the pathogens. They're still going to get the same points. And the points still have the same depth of functions. And I never give up on anyone as long as they're respectful. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so beautiful to talk to you about this, Lonnie. Thank you. You as well. We really enjoyed chatting to the point where I think we've just created a double episode. That's just fine. That's great. (laughs) And, you know... It's just been a pleasure, and all all your input was fantastic. The questions were very thoughtful. I hope to make it, I am sure, that, you know, um, if if it's meant to be, that I'll be coming down to 
Oz and to New Zealand someday to teach. I very much look forward to it. I, I know that a lot of my books sell down there. Oh, we love so you here. I, I, so I know they're popular, and I, I would just give a shout-out to everyone down there, and um, I look forward to meeting you all someday when I do come to visit. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show, um, and we hope that that's been really beneficial for a lot of listeners, and um, it's definitely been really beneficial and interesting for me. And we'd love to hear from, from you, our listeners. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can uh, leave your comments, thoughts and responses on our Facebook page. You can find us, Heavenly Chi Podcast, on Facebook and HeavenlyChiPodcast.com. See you soon. That's all for now. Thank you.